Welcome to Digging In, where we provide a front row seat to politics in New Hampshire. I'm State Representative Anita Burroughs. I'm here to bring you the inside track on the people and politics that are shaping our state. Today, I'm speaking with former county attorney Michaela Andruzzi, who has spent much of her legal career supporting the victims of sexual and domestic violence. Digging In will be reporting on new legislation on this topic in the New Hampshire State House for the 2024 session. Just before we get we we dig into the um, domestic violence issue, um, you you I know that you've dealt with a wide variety of cases in Carroll County, and uh, I've lived here for over thirty years, and I always think of it as this incredibly safe place where crime doesn't happen. But I guess that's not really the case. Some things we just don't hear about or know about. Um, so I'm probably living in a little bubble here. So um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the cases that you you've dealt with in Carroll in Carroll County. Sure. There are a lot of domestic violence cases here in Carroll County, um, and they are divided into two segments. So we have felony domestic violence, and then we have misdemeanor domestic violence. And for uh, the first few years I was here, the misdemeanor domestic violence cases were handled by the police prosecutors, which is normal here in New Hampshire for police prosecutors to handle those lower level offenses. And then um, the uh, felony cases would come to our office. And what I what I noticed was that there was sort of a, a disparity in the way that cases were handled. Some departments handled them um, more aggressively than others. And everybody, you know, every prosecutor is a little bit different, um, but there wasn't really continuity across the, the county. And so it was important to me to get that continuity. So we went to the uh, delegation and the delegation um, thankfully approved us for a domestic violence prosecutor to handle those misdemeanors. And so now this office for the past, oh gosh, I, it must be four years now, has handled all of the domestic violence cases. So there is sort of a, an overarching um, theory about how those cases should be handled. Uh, in my view, misdemeanor cases are probably the most important ones that we we see in a way, because that is generally the first time somebody has interaction with law enforcement and the, and the prosecutor's office. So for me, it's important to handle those cases correctly to try to stop that next case and try to stop that escalation. My understanding is that it's very rare, and maybe you correct me, that it's rare for somebody to stop with one offense. Is that true? That is true. Um, that has been not just my empirical um, experience, but also just statistically it's borne out that generally there will be about seven incidents before the police ever get involved. Um, and that... That may be based on some old data, but I still think that's about about right. Um, and I, I base that on many uh, conversations that I've had with domestic violence victims. Um, it, you know, it, it bears a lot of those hallmarks of that, just that power and control, as, as I'm sure you're familiar with, with your work with starting points. Right. So. And um, can you talk a little bit about numbers in Carroll County? Sure. We handle about 100 uh, to 125 misdemeanor cases that come in on a yearly basis. 
And felony cases, that's harder to determine because uh, it, it crosses into other areas. So for instance, we have um, sexual assault cases that can also be domestic violence. We have burglary cases that can also have uh, domestic violence components. Um, so that is a little harder to determine. I would say that it is one of the largest categories of offenses that we deal with here in Carroll County. Um, certainly one of the, the most serious um, types of cases. And would you agree some of these cases, I mean, I call domestic violence almost in some cases as the invisible crime, you know, um, it may be going on in near, near where we live and we just don't know about it. I, I mean, I, I not a couple of years ago, I was out walking um, outside of my neighborhood and heard a man yelling like really, really loud, like scary loud. And I, another woman walk by and we called the police. I mean, I don't know what was going on, but you just, I, mean, I guess my point is you just don't know what's going on in somebody else's home. Absolutely. It, um, it is something that crosses all boundaries. So there right. is not a socioeconomic peg that goes, <laughs> that goes in a yeah. specific place. It's everywhere. You've got it in wealthy communities. You have it in poor communities. It is, it crosses, you know, uh, into, into different areas as far as, um, the, the areas in the county. Um, there's even, you know, a crossover in gender. While we are traditionally used to seeing uh, domestic violence perpetrated against women, and in in general, that is true. Uh, most domestic violence cases do involve females as the victim. We do see some uh, where males are the victim, and and those need to be taken seriously as well. There is a, you know, it's it's about power and and disparity in that in that level of power. Um, I always like to say that, you know, if somebody walks up to me in a, a bar and they hit me across the face, it really doesn't cost me much to go to court and testify against right. them. Right. But if that person pays my mortgage and coaches my my child's, you know, baseball team and, um, you know, I d make sure I sleep safely at night and, and that person has a key to my house, that that's a very different story. And so, you know, we when we're prosecuting domestic violence, there are always those those types of issues that arise where, you know, we do see victims that don't want to go forward for a variety of reasons. Right. And does, when you say that men, uh, you're seeing more men, is it, are they primarily part of the LGBTQ community or is it, is it every, everybody? I think it's everybody. everybody. And, you know, we definitely do see people in, in the LGBTQ, sorry, know, it's hard. community. It's hard. <laughs> sorry, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of letters. Um, yes, we definitely see, uh, those those cases come uh, in our in our caseloads, um, but it's also you know in in heterosexual you know relationships you do see um, females being the predominant aggressor in a relationship, right. and um, it's always so tricky because it, uh, you know sometimes it is because there's a flashpoint, and we will have somebody that is traditionally a victim who actually tries to reach that flashpoint earlier to minimize the amount of violence. And so you really kind of have to do a weighing. It's not just a simple, well, she hit first, therefore she's the aggressor. Sometimes that person will have been the victim six, seven times before, and this time is the aggressor because they're trying to escalate it before it gets worse. The longer you go in that domestic violence cycle, the more violent the episodes tend to be. So we we do have to weigh that out. And that's, um, you know, that's something that comes with experience, which is another reason I really like having dedicated domestic violence 
prosecutors, people right. who, you know, just study that and just really focus on that. And they they get used to those dynamics and and they are able to navigate those dynamics a lot better. And, you know, an, an astonishing statistic, and I think this bears out nationally, is that that over 30 percent of women in New Hampshire have been sexually assaulted. I mean, that is that is really startling number. And um, I also read a University of New Hampshire study that if you take the population of, of Manchester and Concord and added 14,000 people, that's the number of cases that they they have they have um, seen in the state. So that's pretty astonishing. It is. I think I think most people are astonished by that. Yeah. I, I I tend to be a little more jaded. I'm not. Um, I, I'm fond of saying, you know, look to your right and find the first woman you see. Now look to your left and find the first woman. Statistically, one of them has been the victim of domestic or sexual violence. Right. Um, right. it happens, you know, every day in every community as we were talking about. And, um, it is, it's frightening the number of people who don't report, but it, you know, it happens everywhere. And, and I certainly understand why people don't want to report. And I certainly understand how someone can, you know, you, you get groped in a public place and you just sort of freeze up and think, did, did that right. just happen? What, that's a sexual assault. And those happen all the time and it, and it just doesn't get reported. It's probably the most underreported crime. Um, I, I am also fond of saying that whenever, um, you know, people talk about false reports for sexual assault or domestic violence. Um, I always say, you know, false reporting is not the problem. Underreporting is the problem. And that's where we need to start by assuming that it happened. And if we receive evidence otherwise, fine, but nobody questions you know, if my car gets stolen, nobody asks me if I'm, you know, I smiled at the guy before he stole my car or, you know, if I was wearing a bra or yeah. <laughs> nobody asks those yeah. questions, but they do get asked in, you know, crimes against women, for instance, or, you know, uh, just domestic violence crimes and sexual assault crimes. Those questions get, get asked. Yeah. It's, a, you know, you read things, cases that are public, like with the Me Too movement, and you hear the questions asked. It's and I actually read about a case that you you prosecuted in Utah with a woman named Layla, and it was astonishing to hear the questions. It was like you know, what does her clothes have to do with it? You know, nothing. And um, th those are those are pretty um uh, hard to believe. Um, and the other thing I don't think people un understand. I think if you've not been through this, you don't understand. There are women who or men who freeze during a sexual assault, they actually, they freeze and they, they say, well, why didn't you fight back? You know, must've meant that you were, it was consensual. And have you seen that a lot in, in your, in your world? I definitely have. Um, I like to, you know, for a long time, it was, uh, you know, we were taught that there's a, 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 you know, a flight response to this or fight response. But I also think there's a freeze response where you just literally shut down. And we see quite a bit of that. And I, can't count the number of victims who've said to me, I didn't know what to do. Right. Um, and I've prosecuted those cases. One of the, the, the case you were talking about with Layla, there was, there were a, a number of victims. I think I took five of them to trial. Uh, and one of them, one of the victims that testified when she um, was in front of the jury, she said, you know, I always thought I'd know what was going to happen to me if I was in this situation. And you don't know, you don't, because I didn't right. respond at all. Like I thought I would. All I kept thinking about were 
my children at home and I needed to get home to them. So I did nothing. I just laid there. And um, that doesn't mean it's not a sexual assault. You know, Um, I don't know why the way that sexual assault chart or statutes are phrased it is essentially like you know without consent and and to me consent is not floating out there so i always say why why don't we frame it so that they have to actually get permission <laughs> rather than you know a woman has to say no or somehow um if you read the new hampshire statute you'll see that a, that a woman actually has to like convey a lack of consent <laughs> or say no right doesn't really work that way. I mean, it right, seems to me right. that the onus should be on the other party to yeah. obtain the yes rather than on the the victim to, you know, transmit the no. Um, but that's that's pretty standard across the United States. So right. And you got a backhanded compliment from a gentleman you prosecuted in the case with Layla. And he said, um, Andrusi acts like she's an ex with a grudge against me. <laughs> she done kicked everyone's ass, which I loved, yeah. you know. <laughs> I thought that was a great quote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh-huh. anyway, got a te- good testimonial from uh, somebody you prosecuted. Oh, I'll take that as a compliment. Okay. Right? No, I, I took it as a compliment. So. Yeah. And um, I think the other thing is, unless you've been through it, I don't think, and I, I can't put my arms around it. The, the impact that a sexual assault has goes with somebody through that with them their whole life. Um, I have a close friend who was raped when she was, I think around 19, it was a very violent rape. She and her friend were um, raped at gunpoint. And I think it's impacted her to this day. Um, I think it's impacted her relationships with men, um, her friendships, everything. Um, So, and I don't think people have, they have a hard time saying, well, why can't you just let it go? You can't. I mean, it's just, it's something that changes everything. Um, I've heard even... Even victims in burglary, people understand that once somebody has violated your home, you don't feel safe in your home. Well, but somebody's violated your body and you don't feel safe in your body anymore. Um, that is your home. I mean, there's nothing more personal than your body. Um, I, uh, I've i had some frustrating results in in sentencing hearings where a judge, you know, you know, for instance, if there was a, um, a sexual assault that was um, digital penetration, they don't take that as seriously as if it was a penile penetration. And I'm like, you know, that's because you're looking at it from the male perspective and not the female perspective, because- right something entered this woman's body and to her, it doesn't really matter what it was. Um, it matters that something entered her body. And, um, so it, it is just as serious and it is, it does impact you. Um, you know, uh, obviously there are different levels, some more violent than others. And, and that can really, um, mess with somebody for the rest of their life. Like you say, you don't, you don't feel in control of your body. Um, you know, if it's a, if it's a relative or a friend, you don't trust your own instincts anymore. You're like, I never thought that I, you know, I couldn't trust that person. So you learn to not trust your own instincts. So then you second guess everything you do. Um, you second guess every person that you get close to and whether you can trust them. And, um, but I do think I agree with you, unless you've been through that, you don't really understand. Um, and I find that, that in domestic violence and sexual assault cases, when I'm presenting them to the jury, I have to understand that the jurors have biases they do i can't i can't change their biases and Mm -hmm. i it's not my job to change them i guess is is the way that i look at it like i could get mad about it but really all i want is to get justice and so i sort of get in the mind of the monster and i think well you know if if i've got somebody there that has this bias what questions can i ask to get rid of that 
And so sometimes you do have to, you know, I, I take a victim of sexual assault and I try to step back what, what the escape route is, you know, did you, did you know this? Were you in, in your own house? No, I was in someone else's house. Did you, were you sure where the front door was? Did you know if the front door was locked? How far was it to your car? Did you know where your car keys were? Because those are the questions that come up in jurors' minds, but they don't think through them. So I have to try to step them through it. Um, and we did that in, in that case involving Layla, you know, where, where we had to step through, you know, did you know where safety was? Did you know if, you know, this person had a roommate? Did you know, none of those questions, you know, and I, I think it's important to ask it in, in a sensitive way. So it doesn't look like I'm victim blaming because certainly nobody is asking for that um, in, in society in general tends to victim blame in domestic violence and in sexual assault cases. Um, it's, it's, I don't think people think that they're victim blaming, but they certainly do. <laughs> you know, I've heard um, men that I, it, that I worked for say to me, well, I really don't, I don't know if you should take that case forward. I mean, my daughter would never put herself in that situation. And I think, really? Because <laughs> um, who hasn't been in that situation? Who hasn't gone on a blind date and gotten into maybe a car with somebody and then thought, oh, I don't really know this person. What am I, you know, in there, but for the grace of God, go any of us. So um Nobody asks for it. Uh, right, you know? right. I actually remember being on a date. I mean, this is probably 40 years ago. And I suddenly, the guy was in my apartment and I suddenly, I don't know, something told me not to trust him. He was telling me these stories about his ex-wife or something. I just very quietly went over and opened my door. And it was kind of a message just saying, you're leaving real soon. Yeah, and, it's time you to know, go. so, you know, um, I think. I think you know, a lot of women do that. Um, do you think that more people, the public, men and women, are becoming a way more, do less victim blaming because of the, the cases that have come out that have been so public um, uh, with Weinstein and with Bill Cosby? Do you think that that people are seeing, well, wait a minute, you know, this isn't what I thought it was? I do. I think that there has been a shift. You know, I, I think there's also been a shift, for instance, in prosecution and in law enforcement. We're seeing... Um, I would tell you stories that, <laughs> uh, you know, turn your hair bright white because I dealt with some, uh, you know, law enforcement earlier in my career, obviously 20 some years ago where, you know, they just didn't believe the victim. Um, it was, I would get these, well, you know, I think it was uh, buyer's remorse and I'm, I'm like, that, that's not a thing. <laughs> it's just not a thing. Or, right. well, it's a, he said, she said, so we don't really know who to believe. And I'm like, well, yes, you do, because one of them has a motive to lie and the other one doesn't. So you do know who to believe. And, um, you know, why would somebody go through this? Why would they tell you that if it didn't really happen? Um, so I always, you know, it has gotten easier. Uh, you know, we have the sexual assault response teams in, in I think, every county in New Hampshire now. So I'm pleased with that and and just, um, you know, educating people and talking about it. And um, I know people probably get tired of me talking about it, but I, I think, you know, it's been so many years that it hasn't been talked about. I have a lot of ground to make up here. <laughs> we need to talk about it a lot. Right. So um, I, I, I do think it has gotten better, um, but there's still so much so much room for improvement um, where we need to start at uh, from the perspective that this person is not lying. Um, right. And certainly in my career, I think I can, I can think of one case out of thousands where it was a false report and it was verifiably a false report. Um, 
And I've had one domestic violence case and one uh, sexual assault case in all of my almost 27 years. So um, I really, you know, I, if, if I believe a victim, I, I think it's my job to make the jury believe the victim. And it's my job to see justice in that case so that it, at least she knows I believe her. At least right. she knows right. that, you know, the officer believes her. At least she knows that, you know, somebody is willing to fight for her. And when I use the term she, I'm just using that generic. We've also, you know, would fight for anybody um, in that situation. Now, when a, a victim would come uh, come into your office or however you meet them, at that point, have they gotten to a place of safety for, for, or or maybe some of them don't? How does that work? Uh, well, we have a victim uh, services unit in our office. Um, we've expanded that to two full-time people. and um, But again, that was one of the reasons I wanted to bring misdemeanor domestic violence here. The police departments do not have victim services in um, their agencies. We have one agency in the county that does, but the rest of the police departments do not. And so it's it's incumbent on the county attorney's office to make sure we're reaching out to those people, making sure that they get victim services, um, you know, and, and provide them with, uh, you know, the, the connection to starting point, which is always where we literally start. That is our starting point is to refer them to starting point to make sure that, that is our county agency for people who live don't live in the area. Right. right. Um, and we, you know, get them in, make sure that they get victims compensation for anything that they need to do. I, you know, I try to give them information. I know that there are security companies that will install cameras for free uh, that, you know, do a lot of things for domestic violence victims. And I think, um, it, you know, that that is the place where we need to be. But a lot of times there's just isn't any safety. There is not safety when somebody has been dealing with this for, you know, if they've been married 10 years that person knows everything about them. Yeah. They know all of their friends. They know where their family lives. They know where the spare key is hidden in their mother's house. They know everything about them and they will never feel safe. And um, I do not know how to describe the, the smell of fear, but it, there is a very distinct smell that, that people who are just terrified, it, you can smell that fear. Um, that's, that's chilling. That's just chilling hearing that you know, um, to not feel safe and to feel afraid all the time. That That is absolutely chilling to me. Um, let me ask you this. This must be emotionally draining for you or for the other prosecutors that you work with to to deal with this. I mean, it, it's hard. It, it's hard not to have it impact you. And how, how, how does how does that, that impact you? You know, everybody asks me um, a, a variation of that question, and I generally just joke and say, "Well, I just drink a lot." Um, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> it's not true. We uh, um, it, it, we we deal with it in our office um, with humor and um, with support for each other. We are a very collaborative office. It's important to me that we, for instance, we eat lunch together every day and we talk about cases. And you know, sometimes we you know we we make silly jokes about you know the way the case is playing out or whatever. I mean, we just try to make sure that everybody is okay. And if somebody is not okay, then they need to take some time off or that I pull them off of a case if it's really getting to them. There are always going to be those cases that hit you hard. Um, I have several in, in my career that I think about probably every day. Um, I don't think we do enough for law enforcement and prosecutors to deal with that vicarious trauma. Um, every victim I meet, I say, go to counseling, go to counseling. But yeah, 
we we don't take our own medicine, you know. But you, you serve uh, as each other's counselors. It sounds right like, for support. That's, that's that's sort of what we have to do, and you know that that's why it's so important in a prosecutor's office for there to be that camaraderie and that um, that close knit community where everybody gets along and everybody you know can be there because it is a stressful job. And um, you know, when I'm getting ready for a big trial, I am not the nicest person to be around, but everybody knows that that's just me getting ready and that it's not personal. And I'm just trying to to think through everything. So I don't forget anything because I am fighting for that victim right. and I don't want to let that person down. Uh, yeah, that, that you have a very hard job. And what is distinctive about the work that your, your office does because you have a reputation for being strong prosecutor against the, in these cases. So what do you, what do you think is different or unique about the way you approach this? Gosh, um, I am just passionate about what I do. I love my job. I absolutely love it. To me, this um, this is it, it. Definitely is a calling. Um, I think that without your determination to win, um, you aren't going to win. Uh, you're you're setting yourself up to fail. If you don't care about the job you're doing, you have no place in my office. Um, it, it is not a place for somebody who's just trying to cash a paycheck. This is a passionate place. All of my prosecutors are passionate about being prosecutors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we are fighting for those victims right. and trying to make sure that they get justice. And um, I have, have always... You know, it just maybe it just goes with a red hair. I'm just really fiery. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I might have to change my hair color then. But uh... <laughs> definitely, everybody should have red hair. <laughs> I definitely we just need a whole kingdom of gingers. <laughs> and, the, and the you know, I'm part of the delegation, and I have to say, we're not going to get get into the deep end of politics. But my perception is that you've managed to stay clear of a lot of the p- politics that happen a lot in counties and and beyond. Um, and I always admired you when you would come in, you would fight for your budget. You would just be so prepared and so meticulous. It was hard for anyone to say no to you. Um, (laughs) So I hope juries feel the same way. (laughs) I mean, you know, it was just, you know, we can't, we can't, I, I think very rarely were you challenged in terms of more money or more programming. Maybe I'm sure I missed a few, but that was my perception. Do you agree with that? I don't, you know, I, I find it unfortunate that I have to pick a political party to run for county attorney or sheriff, because Mm -hmm. to me, I, I, I don't think this is a partisan job. I don't think being a sheriff is a partisan job. I think it's, in fact, I think you shouldn't be partisan. It really, um, you know, there, there might be things one way or another, for instance, I, I believe in diversion. I believe first time offenders should be given a second chance. And maybe that is affiliated more with, you know, a democratic perspective. Although I know a lot of Republican county attorneys that have the same programs. So who's to say, um, I think that the, the delegation, you know, needs to, they, they have questions and they needed to understand what we, what we do. And what I learned very quickly is that it's important to tell them what we do and to explain what we do, because I don't think a lot of people, when I first came on, understood what we, what we were doing. Not everybody had your, your background and your experience. And, um, you know, having a few people on that delegation, you know, you, you with your background, I think we have another state rep who is retired law enforcement, that's helpful. And then, you, you know, just just coming in and answering questions and really having nothing to hide. I'm not right. I'm certainly not trying to pad my my back pocket. Uh, we just right. really try to do the best we can with what we have. Um, we're never going to have as as low a caseload as a civil attorney or, you know, a federal attorney. But 
Um, but we shouldn't be so overwhelmed that we're burning our people out. So I've yeah. been very fortunate that we've had a great delegation the whole time I've been in office. Right. And I just remember um, Brody Duches, who's a former rep, happens to be a Republican, doesn't matter. Um, I remember he actually made calls to some domestic violence agencies to educate himself before he came in to vote. And I was very impressed with that. I mean, he was, I mean, he's still a kid to me. I mean, he was like 24 years old. And he, yeah. Um, let be, the last thing I want to talk about is um, there must be some people that you feel deserve a second chance or um, need to be dealt with differently than somebody who's a chronic uh, offender. And can you talk a little bit about that, how how you how you treat some of these people who, who you feel may be in a different category than, again, the violent the violent individual? Sure. Um, and every case is different. So we do the best we can with what we've got. If we've got in a domestic violence case, if I have a victim who comes in and says, I can't, I absolutely cannot testify. I just can't testify. I'm afraid that something horrible will happen. But I, as a prosecutor, think, but if I don't hold this person accountable, I'm afraid something horrible will happen. So then we have to try to come up with a solution. Um, and we we do, for instance, we created the diversion program, which keeps people's record clean. And when I say first time offenders, we have let people in there where it's not a first time offense, um, generally not domestic violence, uh, but, you know, petty theft or or something to that uh, to that degree. I do think some people deserve a second chance. And I think it's it's a matter of, you know, is this is this person committing crime because they have an underlying mental health issue that can be dealt with and then will stop them from committing the next crime? Really, our job as prosecutors is to make sure that people are held accountable for their conduct and try to stop them from repeating that conduct. And so those things have to be weighed out in every case. I, I wouldn't put a violent offender in a diversion program. I just wouldn't. Um, that's just not something that I would I would think is okay. Uh, there has to be punishment. There has to be accountability. But on the other hand, you know, is every sexual assault a prison case? Probably not. You know, we have had cases where somebody committed a sexual crime when they were maybe 15, 16 years old, and nobody found out about it until they were 23. Well, the law says we prosecute them in the adult court. Do we treat that person differently for having committed a crime when they were 15 and now they're an adult and they've not committed anything in between? Probably. I mean, that's that's something that we weigh out. On the other hand, if they've continued to perpetrate crimes, you know, up until they get caught this time, then that's a that's a different story. So I like to say there's no one size fits all in in this. I can't say everybody who gets charged with, you know, strangulation, domestic violence is going to prison. I can't say that right. because every case is different. Every victim is different. Um, but really, ultimately, it is a matter of, um, you know, trying to factor in the safety of the victim, what is going to keep the victim safe in the future. And also protect the community because the community is also a victim in cases like that. It's it's heartbreaking when you have a victim who says, you know, if you send him to prison, I'm going to lose my house and and he's not going to be able to pay any child support. And that's heartbreaking. Right. But I think, you know, but he's been convicted of domestic violence on three other women in the past. And I just really that has to you know be balanced out because not putting somebody like that in prison might right. mean that there's another victim around the corner and so you really it's always a balancing act in prosecution um that's why we have such broad discretion and i 
you know, we're not, we're not hundred percent. We make mistakes like everybody does, but we do the best we can. We try to weigh everything out and we certainly put a lot of thought into every negotiation. We include victims in those negotiations. We include the law enforcement officers who've investigated in the negotiations by letting them know what we're thinking and see where they fall on that. Um, so it's just very collaborative. I think that that, you know, it's, better than making a decision one person one yeah, brain it's right. better to include as many people as possible and then ultimately come up with the best possible scenario all the way around what are you most proud of of all the time that you've you've been in this position as it oh relates to domestic violence <laughs> Um, all the young prosecutors that I've trained, um, and I've watched them go on to great careers, um, some of them in the federal system, some of them are judges now, um, some of them stayed in prosecution for their entire, you know, like me, career prosecutors. Um, I'm I'm just so proud of being able to mentor these young people and, and having somebody come into my office as an intern and then watching them grow into, you know, a really great prosecutor. Um, and then uh, we had my first deputy here in Carroll County is now, a, a, you know, a federal prosecutor and he's working appeals in Oklahoma. And, um, you know, I, I think about people like that. And I think I, I feel like that helps make the world a better right. place that right. I, you know, continue to try to train young people. Yeah. Well, just say we're really going to miss you in Carroll County. Um, yeah. um, I think I think you have broad respect um, from both sides of the aisle, which is rare <laughs> in county government. But um, we are really going to miss you. And um, you've done a phenomenal job. And uh, so I just wanted to wish you the best of luck um, and going forward. I, it is, it is heartbreaking. I'm trying really hard not to think about this being my last week in this office as I look around at my empty shelves and <laughs> um, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be so sad to, you know, not be here every day and see these people and be able to sit next to these young prosecutors and go, no, 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 you need to object now. And, you know, well, I'm that's sure they'll still be exciting. calling you. They probably all have your well, cell phone number. I hope so. They do. They do. Uh, my phone tends to go off all day, all night sometimes. <laughs> so thank you. Thanks for speaking with me. I um, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was great. A group of lawmakers have filed a partisan bill which would, in essence, end abortion in New Hampshire. A 15-day abortion ban was sponsored by Representative Dave Testerman, Representative John Sellers, Representative Christine Perez, and Senator Carrie Gendro. This legislation has received national coverage and scared the pants off of women across the country. These intrepid pioneers have been awarded the New Hampshire Political Putts of the Week Award. Governor Sununu told WMUR, I think it's safe to say that we are putting this bill in the crazy pile. I agree. And why is that? One of the many problems with this bill is that most women do not even know if they are pregnant at 15 days. Many women have barely decided whether they're in the mood for love within that time frame. So this piece of legislative absurdity would ban abortion before some women have even conceived or experienced any symptoms of being pregnant. They only make an exception for medical emergencies and do not include rape or incest. The legislation would also punish health care providers who knowingly perform an abortion in violation of this law. Providers violating this law would be fined between $10,000 and $100,000. This band of clever lawmakers fail to do one iota of homework about pregnancy and know nothing about how long it takes after conception for a woman to know whether she is pregnant or not. They should have considered using one of the popular AI apps to research and write this bill. 
this would have gathered more accurate information and potentially made a new digital friend for this group. Here is what generative AI said. Pregnancy care providers can detect an embryo or an ultrasound as early as six weeks into the pregnancy. An embryo develops into a fetus around the eighth week of pregnancy. If your last menstrual period isn't accurate, it's possible that it may be too early to detect a fetal heart rate. If you take a test too soon, it could be negative, even if you're pregnant. Now that took me all of 20 seconds to generate and further research confirmed that the information was accurate. I want to give a special shout out to Representative Christine Pettis, who acknowledged that she had not even read the bill prior to signing it. In her defense, how is a first-term legislator supposed to know that you never sign a legal document without reading it? Now let's give her some slack, particularly since she is a retired nurse who should have seen the flashing warning lights when she presumably read the headline of a 15-day abortion ban. I congratulate this fearsome foursome for doing what no others have dared to do in New Hampshire. This was to introduce a bill without doing any research, understand the trajectory of pregnancy, or fathoming just how foolhardy this legislation is. You, my dear colleagues, are the winners of this week's Political Putts of the Week Award. Congratulations and well done. I want to thank Michaela Andrusi for speaking with Digging In. Attorney Andrusi will be leaving her post in Carroll County to work at another government agency in Concord. On my next episode, I will be speaking with Dover City Councilman Robbie Warrack about his community's action to put an end to book banning in their community's public library. You can subscribe to Digging In wherever you get your podcasts, and we would appreciate if you could help get the word out about our podcast on social media and by mentioning it to your friends and family. 